Welcome to the Therapeutic Food Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Mitchell. I'm an integrative nutrition health coach, therapeutic diet expert, and founder of The Road to Living Whole. There are many different diets out there. It's hard to know which one is right for you with your chronic illness and autoimmune disease. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you the foundational pieces every single therapeutic diet out there shares, and also how to use the best one for your particular diagnosis. If you've been looking for a meal planning partner, help navigating the complicated healthcare system, and want to feel better quickly, I'm your girl. Grab your kombucha and notebook. Let's dive in. Eczema is something I see people seeking answers for constantly, whether it's in mom groups or autoimmune groups. It's itchy. It's sometimes painful. It spreads all over. It isn't pretty to look at. The creams help, but usually don't make it go away completely. It just kind of helps it stay under control and you stop the cream and it flares right back up again. What often doesn't get addressed are the root causes, the triggers, the specific nutrients that can impact it and the role diet plays in making it better or worse. This is what we are talking about today. I have joining me Krista Beegler, who is an integrative dietitian, author of the Eczema Relief Diet and Cookbook, and host of the podcast, The Less Stressed Life. Krista, thank you so much for joining me today. Can you please tell us more about yourself, your background, and your story? Yeah, sure. Well, I think you got like the big high level pieces and then maybe I'll let my story kind of tell a little bit of the rest. I've been in, I'll just say I've been in integrative private practice for years now and ac- accidentally landed on a niche of eczema. I actually don't even say it like it on the front of my website, but they always find me. Um, that's actually where a lot of things started. And it was an area, it was actually my own story that I wanted to like shove under the rug. Uh, I didn't want to be dealing with it because it was a painful piece. So my story probably, I hope it'll sound a little bit like some of your listeners in high school. I remember having dry skin in the winter and I thought, Oh, it's genetic because my sisters have this and my mom has this. And I remember getting some different creams for it. And actually, even though I used steroid cream for, I feel probably like like maximum a month or two throughout high school, I had, it'll thin your skin. And so I had very thin skin that I would like burn later on in life. And so I kind of just assumed it was a thing that came seasonally and it was kind of typical or whatnot. I didn't really see that it was an issue until I had such a mixture of stressors in my life, right? Kind of at the beginning of starting private practice, I was transitioning out of some other contract work. I had small children, you know, all the things. And one day, and this was a little atypical because usually this presented in the winter time. So we can talk about what all this means typically and kind of how it points to different root causes or different layers of root causes. And what happened was I was taking my kids to the swimming pool for five days in a row for swimming lessons. And then on the fifth day I woke up and I, my, I was totally almost swollen shut. I had a rash all over my neck and part of my face. And it was very painful, like very hard to open my eyes and whatnot. And it was such a fun spot. And our, you know, there's this expression in health or integrative healthcare that says, you've got to listen to your body's whispers or you're going to hear it scream. And I'm sure I was not hearing the whispers from that. I'm sure I was, I was just hearing the scream. So that's kind of that in a little bit of a nutshell, but we can talk a, a little bit about some of the accidental things that I did. So about this same time I was getting into, and as a dietitian by trade, very interested in food and the implicate and like all of the things that can do, it can be amazing. I mean, it is amazing. It's like the backbone of everything but our relationship with it and all kinds of things can be a little bit tricky. And so 
I had just finished some food sensitivity training for some different testing and understanding all of that. And like most people, I just wanted to jump in and do the tests and see what it said. And I was so not ready for the results. And it was very disappointing when I got them because I thought, oh, these are all my favorite foods. And for me, and, and this story will weave around, it'll it'll be the boast best best of both worlds. But when I did the things from my food sensitivity test, I actually remember sticking my hand into a bag of pecans and eating them and my eye swelling up afterwards. So I actually, things got worse for me at that time. It's because that time for me, like there was a lot of chaos, essentially fast forward. It took about a year for that to calm down. I was looking for different practitioners to help me. Turns out there's not a lot of people who specialize in skin or they throw the really typical toolbox at you just omega threes or just a probiotic or whatever. And it can be a little bit deeper than that. And so usually I know when I see that toolbox, like on someone's supplement list. And, uh, I was later asked to talk about the difference between food sensitivities, allergies, and tolerances to a Facebook group. And I had a couple kid p- parents of some kids ask me if I would help their kids. And the kind of the rest was history. And we used food to correct their eczema at that time. And since then I've employed more things. Cause there's always there's always a little bit more to it. Sometimes one thing will work really well for some one person, and sometimes you need other pieces of the puzzle. So that's kind of a little bit in a nutshell of how eczema found me and I didn't find it <laughs> for, for, um, and so the thing with, when you have, as you know, when you have a personal experience with something or you, you have that issue, you have a more intimate knowledge that someone who hasn't had it cannot understand. I don't think people can understand that you don't buy black if you've got eczema from like above your, above your shoulders on your face. Cause then you'll have flakes all over your, all over your, all over your shirt. Right. Like that is like something only people with eczema would know. Right. <laughs> right. So anyway, just things like that. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I, I do feel like that's all of our stories. I have my own struggles that kind of led me to where I am today. One of the things you talked about, and I really want to address it, is food sensitivity testing. Mm-hmm. I work with a lot of different practitioners, and some of them absolutely love it. And it's like a foundational standard mm-hmm. test. And other people won't touch it because they don't mm-hmm. find it helpful. And then some people are jaded against mm-hmm. it. And so, you know, let's, can you walk us through talk food sensitivity testing? And yeah, let's talk about mm-hmm. all of that. Well, let me start with some things that might take me less time to explain. And then we go into like, then the science of it a little bit. So why would people be jaded? Um, so let's, let's talk about it. Like, like this food sensitivities. Part of the reason that they are food sensitivities is because there's something going on impairing digestion and assimilation of nutrients and digestion of certain natural food chemicals and different things. And so like histamines, et cetera. And sometimes it's like different patterns and groups of food. It's not really exactly the food's fault. Yes. Like a found a whole food foundational diet. Perfect. Right. But sometimes like if you're reacting to something that's normally a healthy food, it kind of sucks. And so what this essentially boils down to is a bit of a digestion thing. Dr. Jeffrey Bland, he's kind of known as the father of functional medicine. He coined this process called the four R process. And I use a version of this in practice. The first step is remove, right? And that's removing to me, it's removing food sensitivities. If applicable, we'll talk about when it's applicable in a minute gut imbalances, which is a common issue, toxic burden, common issue. And all of these things show up in skin, by the way, 
and stress issues, right? So like stress, that's always like the underdog. No one pays attention to, but your health usually is as good as your nervous system and your stress chemistry. That's where you relapse. So that's the remove piece. And for me, that lasts a couple of months ish. That doesn't mean you'd like be on a strict elimination diet for a couple of months necessarily. There's times where that is a fit, not a fit. We'll talk about that in a minute. The next step of that is replacing missing pieces. For me, that is replacing nutrient deficiencies, enzymes, et cetera. The last step is repairing our population. So if you're going in and picking weeds in the beginning, right? If you're not like filling in the grass and the empty spots, what's going to happen? Weeds grow right back, right? So food sensitivity testing is one piece of multiple pieces of that first step out of four. So what can happen is people can do food sensitivity testing, have a really positive or, or not really big experience. And we can talk about why that is. Um, so they can have that really positive experience or not a big experience. And then what can happen is even if they had a positive experience months, maybe a year later, it's possible. And people have seen this many times, it was really helpful. And then it's not helpful anymore. Like all of a sudden they start reacting to the new foods. So why would that be? So what if you, um, I, I like to call this like the sprained ankle analogy for me. It's kind of like if you're on crutches or if you sit down, if you have a broken or sprained ankle and you remove like the most inflammatory foods that are inflaming your system at this moment, it's like sitting on the couch with a broken ankle. It's like, feel so much better, but you also need to put a cast on it and elevate it and heal it. And that's kind of what's going on because we need other pieces of digestion to work better as well. So I hope that helps a little bit. Now we could go into, so that's like sometimes why people are jaded because, and also we as humans have the tendency to like do things to excess. Even I have a client this week and I use food sensitivity testing of very specific kinds so we can talk about like pros and cons of different types. I use it sometimes. I used to use it all the time. Now I use it sometimes only if it's going to be the right fit. It's the right fit in several autoimmune diseases. It's a beautiful first step really transformational for them. Or the other huge um, category of people that I like to screen for is people who are having a lot of inflammatory weight changes, meaning they're kind of uh, fluxing five plus or 10 plus pounds over a weekend. So the most recent, so the two most recent people had food sensitivity testing. The first person, she only was minimally better because she was so busy with her life and like not really doing protocol properly. And at that point, it's an additional stressor. So that's a big thing is like people have stress under health issues. And when you do something that is another stressor for them, you're not actually helping them. So we need to stop and like acknowledge that emotional piece. The second person of this last like few weeks that's doing it, I talked to him seven to 10 days in, and usually like 10 days is a bit of a turning point because there's immune cells that kind of have a half-life of about that time, 10 14 days. And so they'll have some turnover and big, big changes happening. And he had, and I, I hate to say this, but it's like, sounds fun, right? He'd had 10 plus pounds of inflammatory water weight loss during that time because he was very inflamed. I knew it because I had asked him the right questions. So it's very useful in autoimmunity, inflammatory water weight, but it's so certainly not the last step. And then the other thing I'm very careful to do is not string it out for a very long time because then it becomes more and more stressful. And we were talking offline about how important it is. So many pieces. Okay. Everything in our body is so nutrient dependent. So if we over restrict to where, cause what can happen for people is they restrict foods, they see symptom improvement. And then they're like, I want to do more of this. And the same, this, this guy from last week, he said, Oh, can we just like hang out here? I said, no, we're moving forward. We're going to test things. We're going to move on to the next step, which is going to be addressing what's going on in the gut because we want to actually 
maintain these results. So I, I sat you on the couch to, to get off the broken ankle, to reduce the inflammation swiftly and dramatically. And now I'm going to go ahead and put a cast on and we're going to go ahead and heal what's going on on the inside. And that I think is the big missing piece is we must just keep going. People want to stop at remove or removing and remove more. And ultimately you must digest and absorb nutrients. Otherwise you're going to be in a worse place in a year if you're very, very restrictive. So nowadays I see many people have been restricting for a long time. And depending on what I hear in their history, depending on what's going on, we may make a decision where like, what is the right fit for your nervous system, for your stress and all of those things. So I mean, there's, it's not like just blanket, right? You know, right. so many of my clients and maybe yours, I mean, it just depends. Some people need um, a, like a reset or an intentional experiment and they have the right attitude and it's beautiful and wonderful. And then you whole food diet and it reduces their toxic burden. And then some people have already reduced so much that that making some dramatic change because they're already like super healthy and really whole food, it would actually be an additional stressor. So there's other areas of opportunity we could go to. Yeah, no, I, you touched on so much good stuff. I mean, bioindividuality, taking in their health history, it's, you know, one of my favorite tools in my toolbox. Um, I don't actually run the testing, but I love when doctors do, especially in the autoimmune and -hmm. the chronic illness community, because it is, it is like removing those typically makes them feel so much Mm -hmm. better in this community. Um, But people Yeah. But people tend to over-restrict and then they get nutrient depleted, which causes other health Mm -hmm. issues. And so, Mm -hmm. or they don't heal the gut, you know, or they, uh, the other thing people do is they, they try to take probiotics too early when their gut's already Mm -hmm. leaky and that causes other issues, headaches Mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so they're, that for our method is actually really well because repopulating is last. And most people Mm want to take a pill to feel better very Mm -hmm. quickly when really Mm -hmm. it is a multifaceted approach. Mm -hmm. And to your point, if people have restricted carbohydrates or all kinds of things for a long time, they could have a suboptimal, they could have very low good bacteria. Mm-hmm. And let's just talk big bacteria, big picture, bacteria, fungus, et cetera, other, other stuff. I like to call these kind of like dandelions or weeds. We, we can recognize dandelions in the lawn. And what do they do? They grow and then they spread their, their seeds everywhere. And I would call those like endotoxins, these pathogenic type of bacteria, fungus, et cetera. They love to, to feed on things, which makes it look like you're reacting to the food when really it's that imbalance. And then they produce endotoxins and that can look like brain fog, fatigue after eating, um, eczema, et cetera. So for me, I just want to like move very swiftly and efficiently through food restriction. So we're getting healing action, but we're not getting stuck in a place of too little because mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of my opinion that we all want to enjoy our life. And so we want to reduce inflammation, which is going to make us feel better, but then we want to kind of finish the job. And I think that's really what it boils down to is sometimes the job doesn't really get finished. It's just like, let's just extend. It's, it's literally, I just thought of this analogy, but it's almost like flatten the curve for two weeks. Now is two years. That's what it feels like. People will be like, all right, I did it. You know, like I literally am looking for like two, two weeks initially, Mm-hmm. And then I'll extend just a little bit, but like, you know, some people turn it into like a two year thing and who gets exhausted with that? Everyone would get exhausted with that. Like everyone's exhausted of that kind of concept. Right. So I don't, I don't think that that hurts. And then if you want, we can talk about, so then this is a, a bit of a layered conversation. So there was all of that conversation. And then the next piece is how do you like what food sensitivity tests would actually be helpful? I guess. Yes. 
I think that that's important because people need to know what to ask for. And then they also, when they're vetting, like I, I put, I am a big fan of naturopathic medicine and mm -hmm. they all do 15 minute meet and greets. So people don't know what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, from our experience, we can share what tests we found to be the most beneficial. Mm -hmm. And so let's, yeah, let's talk about that. So people know mm -hmm. what questions to ask as they're searching for answers. Totally. And before I tell you all about the testing, I have to put a big underline and another issue that I see, which is we think the test will solve our problem. You will solve your problem. Your symptoms speak as loudly or greater than your testing. So if your testing doesn't give you what you want, and this, this opinion, I think it's a good opinion is informed by, you know, I, I had seen a really kind of famous gut health doctor during my healing crisis years ago. And he, I'll make it a little bit more brief, but my stool test came back and he said, well, you could do nothing or, and that was like kind of when my ears shut up almost. And that was like, I was like, this is the end of this relationship because can you not see, I am totally like rashed out. Like, don't tell me I can do nothing. And that's, you know, healing is so emotional as well. Like it was for me at that moment. But what the takeaway for me to, for everyone is that your symptoms matter as much or as more as the testing does sometimes. Right. Cause yeah. no test is perfect. No matter what. So keep that in mind. No test I'm, is perfect. I'm going to jump yeah. in there really quick. Please. Cause my daughter, yeah, no, my daughter, uh, was diagnosed with celiac disease at two, but before that, when she was a baby, she had the most horrible colic and it was like the witching hour from like 4 PM mm -hmm. to 10 PM. And it was just vomiting and crying and more vomiting. And um, I was kind of on the elimination journey. Like I discovered I was allergic to corn, which was like a root cause to a lot of my inflammatory conditions. And I couldn't have soy and I couldn't have dairy. And like, so I eliminated gluten. My mom was gluten-free. My dad has to be gluten-free. So we were just like, okay, let's just remove it and see what happens within days. The vomiting stopped. And over the course of a few weeks, it got better. And then when she was two, we went to go get her tested and they're like, we can't test. So we're going to go off of her symptoms. If she's having such violent reactions, we know that this is a problem and I don't want to destroy her body in the process of making it possible for her to get a positive test because she might not get a positive celiac test until she's 14 and she could mm -hmm. suffer until then, or we can go off of her symptoms. And I, and this was an allopathic doctor. And I just really, really appreciated mm -hmm. that approach because I had been in the naturopathic world for a while, but it needed to be documented. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I loved that approach so much. So this is not like an off the wall concept of going off of symptoms. No, in fact, for allergies, a true IgE reaction, that's what an allergy is, is a true IgE reaction. In the literature that I have read, uh, blood testing is most, none of them are perfect. <laughs> like the skin testing is very abysmal for accuracy technically. Um, blood testing is like kind of the more gold standard sort of from like a testing perspective. Then there's skin, which is not that good, but oral tolerance, AKA you eat the food and you see the response is like the top. And that's yeah. usually done under supervision. So like kind of what you're describing, exactly what you're describing really. Right. It's like oral tolerance, clearly an issue. Let's just go ahead and not do this and call it whatever we want to call it. Celiac, um, IgE allergy, whatever was appropriate at that time. Right. I don't know right. what, what year did you say she got her official diagnosis? She was two. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Did she ever have a colonoscopy or they just went, they gave the diagnosis based nope, on They were that. like, we're not doing that to her yeah, that when, sense. when she has such a violent reaction. Yeah, cool. Um, and again, I really appreciate that because I did not yeah. want to go that invasive because I know the other side effects of that and then, yeah. you know, all of that stuff. And I just really appreciated that, you know, the symptoms really do matter. He was even saying like a colonoscopy, 
is not that effective because not a lot of celiac disease is actually in the gut, only like 30%. The rest of it's like neurological or hormonal. Yes, so you get thyroid re- tested every year. Um, you know, it can be infertility. It can be like all these things. And he's like, only 30% of people will even show it in that way. Oh, well, you had a really progressive position. Yes, he's, he's na- nation. People fly in from all over the country to see him. I was very lucky that we got him as our doctor. Yeah. Like this is, this is the gold standard is mm-hmm. how do you feel? And a good yeah. doctor is going to base it off of that and let that totally. be the guide. Yeah. If someone is using only testing, being like, well, and I mean, the most obvious or place where we see this all the time, if someone doesn't feel good, they go get some testing. And then the doctor's like, well, you, you look like the picture of health. And it's like, oh, I don't feel like the picture of health. Something's not right. So, I mean, right. that's like the, that's the exact epitome example of when you put tests above a person and their experience and their symptoms. And, and a lot of people don't want to make changes until the test says, oh, they have this. Sure. And then it's like, okay, now I have to. And I'm like, why would you feel like crap for so many years? And just waiting for a test to like tell you it's time to change. Like, I feel like, yeah, maybe, maybe where you are education wise or like what's important to you or what, who knows? I don't right. know. I, I feel like everybody just has a different, a different thing. Change is really, change is really intimidating and mm-hmm. hard. I yeah. just had a consult recently where, you know, um, 14 year old diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. So very, very young to be diagnosed with that. And as I was digging deeper and just kind of explaining what the process looks like to kind of address nutrient deficiencies, they drink soda all the time. They eat fast Mm -hmm. food every day. They they don't ever eat a vegetable or ever eat fruit Mm -hmm. or anything like this. And so the thought of just, (laughs) and just a thought of even adding that stuff in and still eating the fast food, I'm like, just add it in. And they were like, that, that's just so hard, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's like, okay, well, what's it going to take for you to to change. We change from two things, typically inspiration or desperation. And unfortunately it's usually the latter. So mm-hmm. like, so you have to hit a real, I mean, and, and most of the time, all of our changes are like, because something kind of broke and right. didn't really work, you know? And so it's just a matter of like, when is someone going to be desperate? I mean, we can't force any change. No, right? no definitely not. Um, but it, I love that we talk about that. It's usually desperation. Mm-hmm. And that's why the, te- I think the tests help people get to a place in their brain where they're like, okay, I have to, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's not always. Yeah. Right. Okay. So back to food sensitivity testing. So we just m- briefly talked about IgE. That's a true allergy. We think that it doesn't change, but we know it does change actually, because in kids, especially we see that kids outgrow allergies. Why is that? Well, their immune system's really developing minimum till age three, um, if not, if not longer. So we see them outgrow things you know, three and five years old, et cetera. So that's IgE. And then there are all kinds of other immune mediators. IgM, IgA, IgG. So one thing to just be aware of is that a lot of food sensitivity tests on the market. So backing up, we recognized all ubiquitously. We've got IgE testing, we've got standardized testing, and we've got kind of standardized reading. So we just ubiquitously accept that this is solid. We do this, et cetera. We do not have that for food sensitivities. And so some professionals are going to say those don't exist because that moves, it shifts, it changes like IgE or allergy testing should be consistent, whether one test to the next, it's not always, but it should be, (laughs) that's the thought, right? Food sensitivities, it's going to shift based on immune stuff that's happening because of course, most of our immune system is in our gut. So, and there's other things that affect it. Your stress chemistry, that's a huge adjustment for me in the last one to two years in practice is like how much your stress chemistry. And by the way, a concussion 
or a head injury or a whiplash will affect what's going on in your immune system as well. So just keep that in mind. That can be a big catalyst in your overall inception story of your autoimmune um, diagnosis or whatnot. Um, and I'll see, I'll see really interesting things happen like with food tolerance, with concussion stuff. Um, it's really cool. But with these other, with food sensitivities, we don't have a standardized test unanimously across the board. We have all kinds of tests from different companies. That's not right or wrong, but it makes it confusing. Can't summarize it in one sentence. I mean, maybe, but there are these other tests and most of them check for just IgG. Now, some people have great success with that, especially if they've got something pretty severe like Crohn's, colitis, et cetera. If they get an IgG test and they just see the ones that are most inflammatory and they remove those, a lot of people do okay. Some people do okay. But there's opportunities to look at other immune mediators. And I like to, the analogy I like for this is like, let's say that you have like all these Nerf guns in an audience and all these different Nerf guns have different colored bullets. And one test is going to measure just the green bullets, the IgG, but some tests are going to measure the whole pile of bullets on the stage, whether they're red, green, orange, yellow, et cetera. And so you can kind of look at that different ways. Um, some people just look at a test and they're like, oh, well, I'm reactive to corn, soy, whatever. So I'll just reduce those. How I do it, and it's not, there's always more than one way to do everything. So I'm open to all the things. I'm open to what works for people for them, right? So I love that. <laughs> but how I was taught and how I learned and, and whatnot, and that I think works well, and that I've kind of made my own and improved upon is why don't I just flip that on its head and Instead of just eliminating the highest, why don't I just start with all of the lowest, least inflammatory things and do an intentional food experiment for a couple of weeks and then add, 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 and then add, 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 essentially. Um, so three, two, uh, three, two week sections for a total of six weeks, but it gets easiest after two and four weeks, essentially. So you hear a kind of a short term. I, again, I'm monitoring it. I like efficiency as one of my core values. So I like that. Some people prefer to do something for two months. I just don't like it extremely restrictive for that long, but that's how I like to look at it. Cause I'm getting a couple things happening, really whole food, lowest, lowest immune or inflammatory response, reducing toxic burden, all kinds of things. So again, sitting you on the old couch because no, here's the other thing. No sensitivity tests, test all 20,000 food and food chemicals. Right. So right. none. So if you just reduce, if you just eliminate five things, um, and you're not really liking what's happening, well, there's just other options of how to do that. Um, but the thing I just want you to be aware of is hopefully all the things we talked about, which is it doesn't have to go on forever and ever and ever, even people who are doing autoimmune paleo, which can be really lovely for, um, for someone with autoimmunity and especially certain, certain conditions for sure. Uh, a lot of times there is a reintroduction, right? Or they test things. So just keep that in mind. A lot of people just don't get to that because they kind of get burned out or they miss, they miss that. And so I, I just want better for, for you. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a big fan just... of temporarily eliminating, doing some gut healing and then reintroducing because you will find the foods that cause problems. Yeah, exactly. Like they, it makes it, it, your body makes it very obvious. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say, hearing you about your story, it made me think of sometimes people say, oh, I don't understand why this is happening to me or this, you know, we all have like our unique makeup and sometimes we like to blame genetics, but certainly you seem to have a bit of a genetic influence, right? So there's these fun right. two genes. I have them too, like not great ones. And so I'm not genetically disposed to being awesome. <laughs> I'm genetically disposed <laughs> to more likely to have issues. And so Needing I need more care. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to support myself intermittently in different areas mm -hmm. to keep things tip top. You know, like I don't just like do something once and then move on with my life and forget about it. Like it's cyclical. I, yeah, I can, you know, and so that, that can be good to, for people to realize, cause that's kind of a morning thing for people where it's like, 
this is forever. And like, but you can look at it's, I mean, really your success is often dictated by how you're looking at it. Honestly, like you're, you will be more successful more quickly. Um, if you can try to take a high road, I know it's not easy. I'm just telling you. I always tell people you're allowed (laughs) to have a tantrum for a couple of days Yes, and then it's time to put the big boy or big girl panties on. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do the steps that you feel the most comfortable tackling in a time frame that you feel comfortable tack- tackling them. But um, I am definitely against restrictive diets for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and people love to live in them because they feel so much better until they don't feel better anymore. And then they're like, well, does food even matter? Like, why am I even trying? And I'm by like, that no, time you were using it wrong yeah, and you're nutrient time, depleted. Yeah. By that time, their adrenals are fried and then they're going to have really weird symptoms coming back too. So I just kind of let them know, like if your adrenals are really fried, you're going to see all kinds of weird stuff happening because you... I'm in the process of healing my adrenals from stage mm-hmm. three. It was, yeah. um, and it it has been quite the journey. It's my second time going through it, but this time was more severe than the first time, obviously. That's usually how it works, right? And like, it has been a wild, wild mm-hmm. ride. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, whatever induces more, if we want to like summarize it in one sentence, whatever induces more stress for you, the client, whatever, is probably not in your best interest because by the time you do that thing, you're going to have created a lot of negative downstream effects. So when you're under stress, you dump certain minerals and those minerals impact your ability to digest, your ability to make hormones, your ability to make energy. And so it's like just absolutely opposite of what you need. Right. So when you're, when your cortisol is up, your um, potassium gets dumped. When your body is trying to control blood pressure, your sodium is dumped. And as these things are dumped, these are critical nutrients that help support how the adrenals are operating. So a dead ringer, red flag, my adrenals are not working very well is when you get dizzy from sitting to standing or standing to sitting to standing or laying down to, to sitting or standing because your body doesn't have the basic resources to help like shift that blood pressure, um, big picture. So you'll just get, kind of get woozy or lightheaded and they're like, and you can get all these minerals are really, um, impact like contraction and firing of nerves and, and muscles and things. And so have like weird twitches and possibly heart palpitations and just stuff that makes you real stressed and confused and really concerning. Yeah. So anyway, so to bring this back, where does food test food sensitivity testing and food tie into eczema? Sure. It depends on the case. So if I may, I'd like to like kind of share the layers of cake or frosting for eczema. Please do. It's never one shot, straight shot. It's always multifaceted. Right. So, and it'll, it'll kind of tie these two topics together a little bit better. So, and ultimately when you do change your food, you do change what's going on in the gut. So we can't ignore that. It's just like kind of like sealing the deal or potentially like getting to the end point. I'm not, it's not like, you're not going to restrict gluten and get rid of like a pinworm probably like those two things don't actually go together. Um, but you will shift like bacteria potentially and other things. Okay. So for me, I personally put eczema into three big categories because I like to oversimplify things to make it easier, even though it sounds like it it doesn't sound like it so far in this conversation, right? Or I like to have analogies and and try to make it easier. So the first kind of eczema is gut mediated eczema. This looks red spotted and round and circular and shows up in the primary places. Like it's often children. Most children fit into this category. It's pink. I mean, if you have like darker melanated skin, it can appear darker. Um, I want to bring that up. So it's usually going to be in the inside of those elbows, behind the knees, et cetera. Like those very typical eczema spots. Remember 10 to 20% of kids are affected by eczema. 
I think it's, I think it's five to 10% of adults. Gosh, I can't remember. It's a lot, right? Different skin issues. So that's gut mediated eczema. It may look worse with, you may also like struggle with allergies or asthma typically. And then what else? It's usually going to look better at the beginning of the day versus the end of the day. Not always. Um, and after like hot showers and things that may look worse. So I would call that gut mediated. The next one is just another layer. It doesn't mean you don't address gut gut. It just means like the liver is taking a little more priority. And so this is, I call this environmental AKA liver, I guess. And so that was the kind I had, and it just takes a little longer to resolve. So it's usually going to present a little more drier or flakier. It may look worse in the winter. Um, it's really because your liver is so responsible for like fatty acid metabolism and absorption in every little cell has a phospholipid layer. So what you're seeing with gut mediated eczema is different stuff going on, bacteria. There's always a staph or strep overgrowth in the gut every single time. Um, but there may be other bigger stuff as well. Um, sometimes I see like really nasty stuff in there and all of those things are, are giving off endotoxins as dandelions laying off their, their seeds. And that's presenting in the skin, especially in kids, because the skin is a safe place for the body to eliminate stuff. Right. So it's always a detoxification issue, but, um, they eat the things or, and then it, and it feeds that process. Those parasites or bacteria or fungus love to eat that. And then, and then it presents on the skin. It still happens with the liver environmental environment, mediated eczema, but these people might be more sensitive to smells, more sensitive to fragrances, more sensitive to personal care products. People always say, oh, I've tried everything from eczema. Like they changed their detergent. They changed, they improved, you know, they, they got rid of plastics and replaced glass. They did all those like environmental things, which are good, but they're just not all, everything, right? Like there's a lot of things. There's a lot of opportunity. So that liver environmental one, a little drier, flakier, it may be worse in the winter. Um, that, I mean, might present around the eye, might present in like different places overall. It doesn't mean that that's not still important. You just think about it, it's like a layer. And then the last one is really stress mediated. And maybe you're going to have symptoms of adrenal stuff going on, which we had just talked about. But the dead ringer on skin for me is it's on your hands. Uh, I rarely if ever see hand eczema present where someone didn't have it as a child or didn't have it in some other capacity or didn't. Uh, and then it came up later and it showed up later on the hands. Sometimes they get it for the first time in their hands. I think during pandemic times, people were really using a lot of hand sanitizer and disrupting their hand microbiota. Um, and that allowed things to overgrow. But I will say that, um, Typically there's nutrient deficiencies related to stress going on in hand eczema. And of course, hand eczema is made worse. You like you, it's even more stress inducing because you, it's so painful. Right. So I, I find that stress is a huge factor, if not the primary layered factor in people with hand eczema for sure. Uh, I find, so those are kind of the layers of it. So the people who do the best can be either one of the first two. It sort of depends. I think that the gut mediated are going to do better in most eczema, even though I had, so there's like multiple ways to do everything. So my early eczema cases had success with food sensitivity testing, and now I don't do it. I may adjust histamine, which typically is the biggest category of foods that are struggling because it's a natural food chemical that's uh, affected the digestion and the elimination is affected by what's going on in the gut and the liver, which are both a factor of eczema. And so now I get just as much success by not doing like insane diet tweaks, 
Um, I can usually just do some diet tweaks, possibly maybe adjust histamine. It just sort of depends. I kind of wait because I don't want to add more stress to everyone's lives. Everyone's in a different place. And I usually work on the gut stuff and the liver stuff, et cetera, first, but either one could benefit from food stuff. It just kind of depends. Again, I'm starting from a baseline of people with a really healthy diet. If their diet was not already really healthy, then, then getting to a whole foods diet is going to be helpful for anyone. Cause it's going to reduce the toxic burden. It's going to be easier for your body to digest. So we just hit two nails on the head and it's going to be huge. So food sensitivity testing, I think probably best for, um, inflammatory or gut mediated type. Do you have to do it? I don't think you have to do it. Um, I think there's multiple ways you can, you can do it. Um, it just sort of depends on the history, right? The bioindividuality. I just don't want to say like, Hey, you don't have to necessarily, you know, do something for months and months and months or a, or a year to get to where you need to be. But that said, there are some things that really we think are really healthy. Like I used to drink kombucha, like it was my job and it was making everything so much worse. Cause it was like wild yeast and bacteria on an already stressed gut. So I was actually not helping myself and it was very high histamine. So it was not actually helping myself in that manner. So is diet change relevant? Can you do some experiments? Absolutely. Could you do sensitivity testing and potentially have a home run too? Absolutely. I would typically do something that would be supporting and nourishing of the gut following food sensitivity testing, no matter what at this juncture and stage in practice. Yeah. I think, you know, like we've talked about that we don't want to just eliminate, but we want to address nutritional deficiencies and healing foods and things like that. And there's different ways to do that. There's so many tools in the toolbox Mm -hmm. for addressing that. Mm -hmm. But I, what I love about your analogies is like, they could all benefit from all three, right? Like Mm -hmm. we know that's, you know, but it's like, what do you maybe focus on first depending on prioritizing? Cause it's overwhelming to try to do it Mm -hmm. all. And -hmm. sometimes, you know, what's going to be easiest. I am, I've always found sometimes what's going to be easiest for them is not what I, where I would have started, mm-hmm. right. but it's like, if that's, what's easy for you and that makes you feel empowered and, mm-hmm. and like excited, mm-hmm. then definitely it's not going to hurt. Right. That's where you got to start. And one more thing about eczema, that's kind of annoying, but just something to consider is we often want it to be really easy because we're like, it's just a rash until it's like really impacting us. Right. I see moms like struggle and be kind of frustrated with this by all means, try things topically first. It, it could make a difference, but I just like to implore you that eczema is kind of obnoxious. Cause it's really, to me, it's double the work because there's internal and external. So there's a skin barrier breakdown situation, a topical skin barrier breakdown situation. And then there's what's going growing from the inside out. So if there's a huge staph infection going on, which is usually going to look like extremely angry, I typically ask my clients to handle that because there's no amount of adjusting your diet or taking things internally that's going to put out the fire for the staff in the very short term. And then what we do is just spread it around and we're miserable and our life sucks and we're not sleeping and then you're not healing. So I usually deal with any infections on the topical or like have them go to their doctor. And unfortunately, frequently, sometimes the doctor's like, I don't think this is staff. And then Sometimes they put, I, I usually have people just use some things that would address topical stuff, um, low dose. There's different, there's prescription stuff over the counter stuff that one could use. But if your doctor doesn't think it's an issue, maybe just ask them. And, and unfortunately, most of the time that that staff, that staff culture is correct. And it's not perfect every time. So the real answer is, but if you use something that would work on topical staff and it works, okay, I guess you had topical staff. And by the way, we universally agree that topical staff is one of the primary causes of eczema on the skin. Anyway, like conventionally 
like all over. Like that's like, duh, that is just well accepted. You know, it's funny because even though it's well accepted, not every doctor is willing to do it. And sometimes I find that they get offended when you ask. It's weird. Yeah. It's super weird. It's kind of like if you have a stool test done by, um, like a conventional stool test, it's typically, it's really good for like acute issues. So if you got diarrhea, like all of a sudden for like a week, it would probably be picked up. It would probably pick up something in a, in a typical, like conventional stool test. Um, I talked to someone this week and she was telling me about having C diff, which is like a really bummer, like a bummer of a deal. And it was showing up on her conventional stool testing when she was working with her GI. And she said she would take the antibiotics and then it would come back. This is really common. It'll come back. And she said, I could feel it coming back. And then they test and be like, Nope, you don't have it. And then it would get really bad. And then they'd be like, okay, it's positive. That's literally like how things are. It's like the sensitivity of the testing. So it's like, wait till it's really bad. Now I guess it's positive. And so if you kind of catch it a little bit earlier, you don't have to suffer through sleepless nights and pain and misery. So, I mean, just keep that in mind. Tests aren't perfect. And, um, fungal cultures I learned from an integrated dermatologist are not super accurate. So side notes. Good to know. There's, there's always just so much to learn. And I think where I get frustrated with insurance-based testing is that it, you can be subclinical, but if it doesn't reach a certain mark, they're not going to do anything about it, or they can't do anything about it. If you go the insurance route, where if you go the cash pay route, they're more likely to listen to you and say, I trust you. And here's a prescription. Yeah. It's just the quality of, well, it's not really like there's so much to that. Right. And it's just the qual it's clientele. So when you, you are in a cash pay business, only people who want to be there are there typically. And like, they're more, and I'm just telling you how it is. This is how it is. This is the real world. I would implore you though. I did a recent podcast on health sharing co-ops. And I think that I feel really happy that those are an option because they will pay for other treatments outside of the regular, like I have clients submit, to their health sharing companies, which costs like a 10th of what health insurance costs and they actually get reimbursed for services. And so, uh, I like to promote that just because like, I'm kind of grouchy. I like, don't have regular health insurance. I have a health sharing cop. Cause I'm like, why would I support something that doesn't cover my services? So that's just where I'm at with that. But I just, just like to tell you that <laughs> I'm a cash pay. I would rather pay for I don't have anything chronic going on, but I also anymore. Um, but I also just know the quality of care I'm gonna get cash pay is astronomically better. And so I just I just do that. And I'm a big fan of co-ops as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Med- I just like people sharing. to know, like, hey, if you also feel like you're being suffocated by health insurance costs, which is where I was at like years ago. I was working in in conventional healthcare. I was like, this is so messed up and like such a waste of money. Like there's like crazy, crazy, crazy misuse of dollars. I'm like, I cannot be part of this. And then I found health sharing. I felt like an entire like weight was lifted off my shoulders just by switching over because now everyone has what they need. You know, if my kid, uh, breaks their collarbone in a motocross racing accident, which is like true story a couple months ago, like it's fine. It's covered, but, um, t- I can vote with my dollar and, and my money's better used. Cause like the insurance was so expensive. I'm dollars, a, I'm thousands ahead by cash pain personally, not everyone's in that situation, but I still think health sharing co-op, even if you have it as an adjunct for something, like you need something for a while could be really helpful. Cause it could, it can be very, I mean, my whole family, we started at like two fifty. my family of five. I think now it's like three seventy five, and I may reevaluate other ones, but anyway, I just mention it because it can be awesome. So thank you. So if somebody 
is listening to this and they're like, okay, like now I kind of know what questions to ask. I don't think we actually talked about what tests. Oh, sure. Well, and this is going to be tricky because it's, you have to remember that this is going to go based on the experience of the individual. What would you like me to tell you? Like tests that like all of the tests we just talked about? Um, I think I can be what, brief. Yeah. Oh, I think it's more of like, are there certain companies that you like or, sure. um, you know, if somebody has a staph infection, what do they, what would, you know, if to look for staff, what would they, what would they ask for? I think that like giving people maybe some words mm-hmm. or sure. even know what to expect if okay. they, if that was something they wanted to explore. I think giving people a concept and a picture of what to, what it can look like moving forward is really empowering. Okay, cool. So first of all, if you're a regular PCP, you can ask for a staff culture. You can press hard. You can be firm about it. You can ask them to document it if they won't do it. And then they usually will. Um, not that you're trying to manhandle it. You're just standing up for yourself and saying, but topical staff is like a huge part of all eczema. Um, so I'd really like to just check. Um, so that's something your regular doctor is going to do or can do. Okay. Then your regular doctor, most of them are not going to do any food sensitivity testing or gut testing. So just don't put any um, pennies in that bank. Like don't, don't assume that that's going to be a thing. The food sensitivity testing I do sometimes not a ton, but sometimes only if it's the right fit for somebody, because it's also my responsibility to have people not spending money on things that are not like the best ROI for me, it's like a game of how do we get the best ROI with the minimum input costs, um, which is an ongoing game for me every year. So the food sensitivity test I use is called the Oxford biomedical technologies mediator response release response test. It's MRT. Um, and it's elite protocol. However, there are people that do it different ways. Um, even when I did the training years ago, they still haven't updated some of the training and documents. So the way I the way I pre- present the results looks different than like if someone hasn't gone through training or had mentorship. So when you hear the test name, just know it may not get executed the same as every, like everyone may not execute it exactly the same. So whatever. Then the doctor who created that one, that one's endpoint. So that's like all the Nerf bullets on the stage, right? All the different colors. And then that doctor, the immunologist who created that doctor, Jack Pasula, wait a second. I hope I got that one right. It wasn't him. It was maybe someone else. Either way, the immunologist that created it, I'm thinking about this because I'm thinking about him signing off on current tests. So um, the immunologist who created it went on, uh, it was either after or before this test. He also created the ALCAT test. I just remember if it was before or after. It might've been ALCAT first. And then he went on to create MRT afterwards. I actually think that's maybe the the route it was. Um you know, dissonance in a company. I want to do it this way. Someone else wants to do a different way. I'm going to move on and do it the way I like to do it. So I think it was Alcat first and, and their website's a little bit real. It's pretty friendly to consumers. Whereas the MRT test is not as like the website, like could use an update, (laughs) (laughs) but the Alcat one, I feel like last time I looked at it was very consumer friendly. So that was useful. Um, and that's my opinion because the rest of them are IgG tests. So they're just like kind of marginally helpful and people can have success stories or not. Yeah. I have like, I'm thinking of like Everly well, which is IgG only, um, which, you know, I think there's advertisements for it. You see it advertised on Mm -hmm. Instagram and Facebook, and you can do it yourself without having to go to your doctor. So it's a little Mm -hmm. bit less intimidating, but it only looks at one. Um, Mm -hmm. Here in Arizona, a lot of doctors, and I like it too, is vibrant. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, testing and they, mm-hmm. you know, they have all kinds of different testing. And so like, I, there's just so many different ones out there. I've seen some from other te- labs where I was like, I have no idea. Like it was the most complicated, full of mm-hmm. dots things. And mm-hmm. I like when a company is also consumer friendly and mm-hmm. not just for practitioners and practitioners have to be specially trained. And like, mm-hmm. I like a little bit of a combination of both. That makes sense. Listening to like from our meeting and whatnot, what I like is whatever works for us. Right. Yep. And I mean, I could talk about vibrant for like five minutes, pros and cons and whatever. And it doesn't matter. Like, I don't have really any strong feelings. This is just, it's like, this is what I learned. This works when I need it. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of different ones right. out yeah. there and so there just depends they, on what works. They're all pros and cons and it's whatever right. you find that you like exactly. and feel most comfortable with and works for you, the people who are drawn to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do any of this testing. I just know what I see from the kind of the mediator between the patient, the doctor and the tests and like mm-hmm. where they feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but no matter what, people just want to know, okay, I have this. Now, what do I do? Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to just know this and feel helpless, but I want to know what to do moving forward so that I can feel better. Yeah. I think also like, just be careful going out and buying, you do whatever you want, but, um, you may learn that when you go buy a test and you don't know what you're doing with it, or you don't have success with it, like maybe it's a good fit. Maybe it isn't like do whatever works for you. We learn through our failures. We are ultimately all going to fail all the time. So we must like, and that's how we, that's how we change or, or see things differently moving forward. So it's just part of the human experience. Like, I wish I could tell you your first time as a home run. It's not (laughs) usually, yeah, usually it's not very simple and cut and dry. Um, it also makes me think of like all the different things I tried getting towards healthy and how everything helped move me forward into healthy. Some things did pull me back. Um, but being willing to try and experiment and, but I will say that having professional guidance is like, it's a shortcut because it took me seven years and people can figure it out within a couple of months. I mean, I didn't have to spend an entire year healing my severe eczema flare. Like I just couldn't find anyone to help me. And so then it doesn't have, it doesn't take that long. It doesn't have to take that long. It just mm-hmm. depends on where you are with like your nervous system and how stressed out you are and how fried your adrenals are and all of that. Cause that's a little bit more of a slow, a slower, and you can still heal one thing and not heal another thing yet. Like it can take longer. So, yeah, that's kind of where I was, where I, where I, I had so many health problems that like the first thing, actually the first thing that I addressed was my ovarian kept having cysts that were bursting. Mm-hmm. That was like painful. so painful. And it was just like this random thing, like, Hey, my coworker's girlfriend has that same problem. And her doctor told her to stop eating soy and it got better. And I was like, Hey, I'll try that. That's easy. And it did, it worked. And then I went vegan and then I was not vegan anymore. And I had dairy and I was up all night in excruciating pain and my psoriasis flared and it Mm -hmm. hadn't flared in months. And I was like, Oh, well, there's that. And then corn was, we went gluten-free as a family and my migraines came back with a vengeance. And I was like, that's so weird. My mom's like, you know, when you were a kid, you were allergic to corn. We had to stop you from eating it. And I was like, Oh, stopped corn, got better. And then gluten with my daughter and gluten's an issue for me. So there's definitely genetic component with gluten in my family, my mom, Mm -hmm. um, some of my family and all of that. So it's like, HLA and yeah. Yeah. And then like I was mold toxic and like I dress and it just kind of came. It's a real big one. That's yeah. a really annoying one. That will make you feel like you're sensitive to everything. Just oh, yeah. If you feel like you're one. sensitive to everything, you might actually have mold. <laughs> mold. Yeah. Not, I have a couple of really good podcast episodes on that. Like it could be mild to moderate and we don't have to freak out. It's just more aggressive fungus and detox work. So. Yep. 
and it, and it, you know, and so it was like, it was, it was like untangling necklaces. That's the analogy I use when it comes to like <laughs> complex chronic illness. Like sometimes it's changing a couple of things and your health like blossoms. And then there's times when it's just, we're untangling the necklaces that fell on the floor. And it's just, you know, sometimes it's going to look like it's getting worse, but it's actually getting better. And then all of a sudden you're on the other side and you're able to maintain. Mm-hmm. So. Still your collection. Yes. <laughs> you got to be willing to collect them. So, yeah. So is there anything else that you'd like to live or leave with our listeners today? Mm-hmm. Well, what I always like to think of like, well, what can you do today? You can do a lot. You can stop. You can write down the symptoms because I always like people to Google a multiple symptom questionnaire. Cause sometimes they think their issue is just eczema or just this. And when they download that, it's like lots of non-diagnosis symptoms and it allows them to see like how all of those things are kind of contributing. They all come from root causes. Um, so I just like us to have some self-awareness as like the first step. So a multiple symptom questionnaire and maybe like logging for like a couple of weeks, what they're seeing, because if you don't kind of put it down, none of us can remember any of that. And if you've done those things, great. Right. Um, what can you, what can you get, what can you get from it? But I always like data collection as a first step for self-awareness. That would be where I would ask everyone to start. That's actually one of my favorite places to start as well, because we do forget, we don't remember anything. Mm-hmm. We don't remember that we did this. And then the next day we felt this and, mm-hmm. you know, we're, it helps to see patterns. Mm-hmm. I agree. Awesome. So how can people find you? Yeah. So since you're listening to a podcast, my favorite place to hang out is on my podcast, which is called the less stressed life. It was an analogy for inflammation back when I started it in 2017. So I talk about um, all aspects of health, which I think fall under three main umbrellas, which is emotional, nutritional, and structural. And yeah, I mean, once, if you go to lessstresslife.com, you find the podcast, you find all kinds of great things. And I have an eczema quiz. Um, you can find if you're on that website, but I have a whole website called eczema nutritionist.com. It'll tell you what kind of eczema you have, whether it's the gut, the environmental, the stress, and then I've got some resources there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. It was so great connecting with you and learning from you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. If you found this episode helpful, would you do me a favor and help others find it by leaving a review, sharing a screenshot on social media, or sharing the link with a friend? By you sharing what you've learned, others are able to find this podcast and join our community. Be sure to check out my website, www.roadtolivingwhole.com for over 160 delicious recipes, a variety of meal plans, and a blog packed full of even more healthy living tips. If you'd like to learn more about how to work with me as your coach, you can schedule a free consult through www.roadtolivingwhole.com backslash health-coaching backslash. Until next time, friend. Bye.